Thanks, Andrea, for reading that. And thank you all for having me. It's a real pleasure for me to be here this morning. It feels like being on holiday, and not just because my three children are currently 200 miles away. <laughs> Lucy, our eldest, turns five this week. And so for the first time in years, I'm reading fairy stories, you know, the sorts of thing, frogs turning into princes, trees talking, destinies depending upon a rose petal. All good stuff, although if you think about it, if life were really like that, it would be terrifying, wouldn't it? These are always the kinds of miracles that people tend to invent when they make up stories, uh, everyone from Ovid to J.K. Rowling. It's interesting to me that when we turn to the accounts of Jesus' life, his miracles are very different. They're not about a world being made weird, but a world made right. This blind man at Bethsaida is a great example. In my church, we've got two men who at the moment are going blind. Uh, one of them, Alex, has uh, a daughter the same age as my youngest daughter. And I tell you, I would love to make that right. What a precious thing it is to be able to see. Of course, sight works on many levels, doesn't it? When we say to a person, don't you see, very rarely do we mean that physically, rather intellectually, can't you see the answer? Emotionally, can't you see what you're doing to her? Morally, can't you see how unfair that is? And often they can't, and then it's complicated, isn't it? Because how do you get someone to see what they can't? Our passage this morning is about the most important kind of seeing of all. It's about seeing spiritually. I say it's about spiritual sight because Jesus does. Back in verse 17, when his followers are still not getting the most basic things about him, he says to them, do you still not see? And it's no comment on their vision physically, intellectually, emotionally, or morally. No, he explains in verse 17 that it's an issue of their hearts being hard. It's a spiritual issue. So that's how they are before this incident at Bethsaida. And then after it, for Peter at least, something is different. And there's one thing about Jesus that he can see clearly for the first time. And there's another thing that he's yet to see clearly uh, and will need help to do that. Rather like the blind man halfway through the process, I suppose. What we're seeing in that instant is Peter slowly being given his spiritual sight. And my job this morning is to explain to you what those two things are. What the thing was that Peter could see and what was the thing that he couldn't yet see. But if Mark's gospel is right, I can't make us see them. You can't make yourself see them. That's annoying, isn't it? It will take Jesus by his spirit to help us to see them. That's the point of that healing of the man at Bethsaida. Some of us will be thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Brian, most important sight of all. There's no such thing as seeing spiritually. There's no spiritual reality to see. And they may possibly be right. But it's tricky because it's also the kind of thing someone says if they can't see. 
So what I'm going to do now is I think the only logical response to that conundrum, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. It doesn't assume that Christianity is true. It's just open to the idea that if it is true, we will need Jesus' help to see it. So as we sit, do you mind if uh, I pray and if you want to, you pray along in your own head and say or think an amen at the end. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, you know what each of us sees clearly this morning and what we are yet to see as clearly as we might. We noticed that in that story, you dealt with the man tenderly and kindly. You led him graciously and you helped him. And so we ask that you might do the same with us. If there's stuff to see, we want to see it because it's a wonderful thing to see. So please help us. Thank you. Amen. All right, then, two things that we all need to see about Jesus. Here's the first, who Jesus is. It's the issue he raises in verse 27. Can you see it? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And uh, if we just pause there, that's an amazing answer in itself because it just puts to death any idea that uh, Jesus is a, a wimp of some sort. If you'd asked a first century Jew who the bravest person in the Old Testament was, then very likely the, person, the name they'd have given you would have been Elijah. So Elijah who consistently spoke truth to power, who single-handedly took on 450 prophets of Baal, a man of enormous moral courage. And if you'd asked them who the bravest man of their own day was, they'd probably say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who likewise confronted King Herod and famously lost his head for it. Evidently, that's the category of kind of person that the people who knew Jesus put him into. He was no wimp. But what Peter sees for the first time is that to call Jesus uh, a prophet is inadequate. Verse 29, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. Your version might say Messiah, they're, they're two words in different languages for the same thing. That's a way of saying that Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for. Now, all of us have our hopes and dreams and prayers. We have a deep sense, don't we, that this world isn't as it should be. And we instinctively, if it's, even if it's only occasionally, cry out to God to fix it. And according to the Bible, we are dead right on both counts. For yes, this world is broken. It's not the world God made. It's a world that's fallen under a curse. And the problems with it are huge, far beyond human ability to fix. And we're also right to cry out to God because from just about the first page of the Bible, fixing the world is precisely what he has promised to do through someone. The Old Testament is full of little pictures of this one who would come to fix the world. Moses, the servant leader who stands in the gap and intercedes for his people, is a picture 
of him. Joshua, the faithful one who leads his people home, is a picture of him. David, the majestic king who takes on his people's enemies and fights and wins a battle for them that they could never have won themselves, is a picture of him. Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who not just bears with his stupid friends, but saves them. Esther, who by risking her life reverses all her people's griefs. Jonah, who sank down into death but was restored to the land of the living so that he would have good news to preach to those who are far off. They are all pictures of him, great pictures. But the prophets said they were nothing on the one who was to come who would restore all things. The Christ, the Messiah. And what Peter that day saw for the first time was that this man he'd spent three years with was him. Not just another prophet, not just another picture, but the one that the prophets and the pictures pointed to. It's quite a thing to say about your best mate, isn't it? How did Peter come to see Jesus that way? Well, one answer we've already seen. It's a spiritual thing. That's why we pray. But Peter himself in his letters gives us a, a different angle on it, which I think is also important. What he says simply is this. I knew him. Peter had witnessed Jesus calling people and they follow. Jesus teaching people and they understand. Jesus touching people and they're healed. Jesus calming storms, raising the dead, driving out demons, forgiving people. But beyond that, Peter knew the man. He'd had to wrestle with the phenomenon that everyone who's beginning to get to know Jesus well has to wrestle with of thinking, wow, I, I look at his life and it's the humblest life I've ever seen. And yet I listen to his claims and they're the most arrogant claims I've ever heard. How do I put those two things together? I love the things he says about me. I hate the things he says about me. How do I put those two things together? I find myself drawn to him and afraid of him at the same time. Who is this man? If you read Mark chapters 1 to 8, you'll find Peter for all those chapters wrestling with that question. Who is this man? And the point is this, because he stuck with it, because he genuinely wrestled with it and didn't just go, oh, my head hurts, I'm going to walk away, he came to see. Do you know that Mark's gospel was written for us to be able to do the same? It's not a long book. It only takes uh, an hour and a bit to read if you want to get your skates on. But it enables us to get to know this remarkable man, Jesus. And I can think of dozens and dozens of people I know who, because like Peter, they wrestled with this question, who is this man, came to see what Peter saw. If you doubt me. Give it a try. What have you got to lose? God's not tricky in this respect, may I say. He wants us to see. That's the first thing spiritually we do need to see, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who will restore all things. I wonder how clearly you see it 
this morning. You see, the better we see it, the more hope, purpose, peace, passion we will have day by day as we get out of bed. Because, you see, seeing this about Jesus tells us the end of the story. It tells us the end of our stories if our trust is in him. Jesus, the Messiah, who will restore all things. Now for the second thing, which is how he will do it. And this is the thing that Peter doesn't yet see so clearly, to put it mildly. Verse 31, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Probably a clue you're not on the right lines. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It's quite a crash for Peter, isn't it? In, in four verses, he goes from speaking for God to speaking for Satan. What was it that tripped him up? Well, it was this idea of the Son of Man having to suffer and be rejected and killed. It's an idea that, once again, the whole Old Testament prepares us for, if you've got eyes to see it. Just to take one angle, I think of uh, Genesis 22, where we read that God provides our lamb to die in the place of Abraham's son, a lamb for a man. And then we move forward to Exodus 12 at the Passover, where God says that our lamb must be taken into the home and then killed and eaten by the family to save them, a lamb for a household. And then Leviticus 16, further through the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, when a lamb is killed to bear the sin of the people, a lamb for a nation. And then the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 53, speaking finally of the Messiah to come, says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So do you see in the Old Testament the unfolding of God's plan, a lamb for a man, a lamb for a household, a lamb for a nation, a lamb for all the world. The Son of Man must suffer and die. This is how he restores the world. And I want to say that this reality of the cross is amazing. It's amazing justice because it means that God can be totally fair and yet he can forgive anybody. Can I say as a, as a, as a vicar, what an incredibly precious thing that is to be able to say. He can forgive anybody. It's amazing love because God made the first move. While we were busy rebelling against him, he was busy coming and dying for us. Is that not amazing? It's amazing commitment. Because if God has given his own son for us, do you think there is any way that he's not going to see the business of blessing us through to completion as he restores this world? The cross, if we can only see it, is the best most amazing, most heart-melting news in the world. 
Peter couldn't see it. The idea of a Messiah who dies, the idea that the, the road to restoration necessarily had to go via disintegration. Well, Peter at this point, though he was seeking to follow Jesus, he just couldn't get on board with that. Not for Jesus, not for anybody. Now, in that respect, I want to suggest that Peter is far from alone. People today struggle with the cross for various reasons. For some of us, it's because to talk of the cross is necessarily to talk of things like sin, judgment, God's anger, and hell, and we find that morbid. For others, it's because to embrace the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for us means that we have to admit that we need him, and we're not ready to do that. But for most of us, the reason we struggle with the cross is, I think, the same reason Peter did that day. It's because we just can't see how it could be God's way to use weakness. Let me give a for instance. Some of us will know of Elizabeth Elliot, a, a Christian woman who died a couple of years ago. She was the wife of a very famous missionary called Jim Elliot. And she herself wrote a, a number of books. One of them is the novel No Graven Image, which tells the story of a woman called Margaret who travels to South America to translate the Bible into the language of a remote tribe. This lady, Margaret, spends years and years with uh, the people there uh, on this project with her one helper, someone who speaks the local language. And they're well accepted by the community until a dreadful moment when her helper falls ill and Margaret tries to help him by injecting him with a medicine that she thinks will make him better, but he still dies. And the people, the tribe, don't understand what's going on here and they think that she killed him. And so they hound her out of the village and she has to flee for her life. And in her haste as she's fleeing across a river, her bag with all her translation notes, all the, the cards with the words she's translated, fall into a river and are irretrievably lost. And in a moment, her life's work has disintegrated. And the book ends with not a soul from that tribe having responded to the gospel. Now, when Elizabeth Elliot published that novel, she received hundreds and hundreds of letters from Christians that were basically hate mail. They were accusing her of blasphemy. God wouldn't work that way. They said, you're dishonoring him. God brings triumph, not disaster. And they rebuked her, which is ironic because the novel, as many of you will know, is basically a retelling of the story of her husband's life. They rebuked her rather like Peter rebuked Jesus. And for the same reason, that the story of the cross is one that we don't instinctively like. It's not how we want God to work. Not in our lives, anyway. It's why we spend so much energy in our life evading suffering. We just can't see any glory, any point in doing otherwise. But a cross is how God works. 
the road to restoration goes via disintegration. And what to us so often looks pointless and shameful, to God looks glorious. It's his way of getting things done. I wonder how clearly you see that. It'd be something to pray about, wouldn't it? So two things. We need Jesus' help to see who he is and how he restores the world. I've just got a, a few minutes left. What I want to speak about now is to get practical in the ways that Jesus gets practical in verses 34 to 38. If we're beginning to see these things, what is the response that Jesus is after? Well, let me give us just the headlines. First, there is a Christ to follow. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice there's self-denial there, isn't there? May I say, it is the adventure of our lives. It may, well, not lead to glamour, wealth, prestige, the respect of others. In fact, it it probably won't. I think of uh, my year group at university. We all studied PPE together. And uh, I'm sort of in touch with the other guys in my year group. And one of them is already in the House of Lords. And I am not. But I do get to say this, that I follow the greatest man who ever lived. And he calls me his friend. And he is at work in the world today through me. That's something. That's quite an adventure. I found it to be quite an adventure. So there's a Christ to follow. Second, there is a cause to live for. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, and notice this bit, and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Once again, there's an emphasis there that there will be a cost that I I can't be protective of my life. I have to entrust my life to Jesus if I am to follow him. But if we think about it, it's fair enough, isn't it? Jesus, when he came to earth, gave everything for us. When he died on the cross, he made our cause his. And so as he calls us to follow him, he calls us to make his cause ours and to live for him and for his gospel and sharing it with others. Well, that will mean very many different things for for all of us. That's the general direction. A Christ to follow, a cause to live for, and lastly, a coming to prepare for. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He's going to come back He hasn't finished the job of restoring all things. I'm sure you've noticed that. But he's going to come back. 
that miracle of the man at Bethsaida. Do you want to know what that was like? That was like when uh, you're redecorating your front room and you uh, come home from B&Q with a little tester pot. Paint a tiny little corner somewhere hidden so that you can see if you like that color when it's actually on the wall. That's what the man at Bethsaida was like. Do you like the color? Very soon, Jesus is coming back to finish the room. It's a great prospect. There will be on that day a kind of sorting out of people. The sole criterion will be, did we trust in him so as to be unashamed of him and his words? That will be the decisive criterion. Notice that all these responses are Christ to follow a cause to live for, are coming to prepare for. They're really about putting Jesus first in our life, aren't they? If we're to follow him, we really do follow him. Which, uh, I guess, follows if he really is the Messiah and if he did die for us. Let me put it this way. I understand from scientists that the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. Let's say that that distance was in fact the thickness of this piece of paper. Have you heard this? That the, the diameter of our galaxy, if this was distance from the earth and some was this piece of paper, would be a stack of pieces of paper 310 miles high. <laughs> and that's just our little galaxy in the universe we can see and that's just the universe we can see. If this passage in front of us is right, Jesus is the one who made it all. He's the one who will judge it all. And he came into this world to lay down his life for you and for me. Do you think we can quite ask him into our life as our personal assistant to fit in with our agenda? Is it not more likely that if we're going to follow him, we need to follow him? Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, We, we see now how much we need to see. We can't possibly respond to Jesus in the way he calls us to without seeing fully and clearly the majesty of who he is and the tremendous wonder of what he came to do. Please, Lord, would you open our eyes to see better? Help us to reflect on the things we've heard. We pray that you'd help us to wrestle with this person of Jesus until we get what Peter came ultimately to have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.